0: on the back page of our bulletin is the consideration for the day, and the title is The Packaging of Truth, and this is from some guy back in Wei Wen, Leozi, whoever he was. I don't really look at some of the people and who they were more than what they say and whether it's true, and I like what he says here. Beautiful words are not always true words, and true words are not always beautiful, (laughs) and that's true, right? And you can have people... I mean, you can tell them things that they don't like, and it can every bit of it be true, right? But they don't like the words. I have never found one of the biggest things that you can get in trouble for in our society today is just telling the truth. I could stand out on this corner right here and just talk all day long and tell every word of it will be truth, and you will see people, they will probably start throwing things at me, right? They had this video of this guy who went on the Portland State University campus and all he did was say, Jesus, Jesus. And the people were screeching. (laughs) They were like rabid animals. They were approaching him, trying to throw stuff at him. And all he did just said, Jesus. The truth bothers people. This is why we have a politically correct society. They don't want you to tell the truth. You can say anything else. Just don't tell the truth. And so it's just what it is. And you will end up suffering if you just tell the truth. People do not like it. They'll call you liars. They'll throw things at you. They'll call you names. They'll say everything. And all you're doing is just telling the truth. And it's just what it is. We're in a fallen world, and it's just what it is. And you saw that happen with the Lord Jesus, right? All he did was just told the truth. (laughs) And it's just what it is. And so, um, yes, beautiful words are, are not always true. And you can see that in our society today. So that brings us to our message of Glory to Glory, and we're on message 27, and we were looking at what stimulates glory, and so we were looking back at the riches of divine grace, and we looked at, last week, we were looking at four things that I see as the pillars of those riches of divine grace, and we looked at the fact that we were predestinated, (coughs) that we were chosen, that God foreknew us. All of these things uh, are just huge uh, understandings that you have to have, and that we were chosen, before the foundation of the world. Now, a lot of people, they just despise that, again, the truth, that we were chosen. And so they just, I don't, I've never understood it, and I like the way that Jay Vernon McGee says it. He says, you know, you get all these people, that are all bent out of shape about the fact that God chose some. And the real question is not that why did God choose some, the question is why did he choose any? Right? Why would he even choose any? He was not under obligation to choose anyone. And so when you understand the decree of God and you understand how God worked things out, really the question uh, is, why did God choose any? And in eternity past, there was a guy at work that was really, he had a problem with the fact of the evil in the world. And uh, so we were talking about this and I was taking him through the gospel about Christ died on the cross for our sins and how he was buried and raised again on the third day. And he was with me until I said that God raised him from the dead. That's the thing that he had a problem with, is the resurrection from the dead. And he just couldn't believe that I would believe that a man could be raised from the dead. And, um, and then we start getting into talking about how bad the world is. And I said, well, you know, when you look at it, if there wasn't evil in the world, then you would not have a choice. But clearly, you have a choice. And I believe that in the decree, God allowed for that, for people to have a choice. So now all of these people who are evil, they have a choice. They really do. And if, there were, if it wasn't, I mean, if God hadn't allowed for that, they, there would be no choice, right? You'd only be serving one person, and that's him. And so now they have that, and I think it's a little bit more intricate than that. Uh, But as you look at the decree and what God and the the members of the Godhead had a a council and they talked about what would happen in time, one of the things that is important for you and I to understand is that there are no things that are happening today that are by mistake or just by chance. There is no randomness to life. (coughs) Everything is happening for a reason. And God is in complete control of all of it. Now, why is this important? It's important for you and I, particularly as it relates to our relationship to what God has done for us, because it gives us confidence in who we are and what God is doing. And if you do not have that confidence, it's going to be very hard for you to embrace what God has provided for you today. And if you're not going to embrace what God has provided for you, it's going to be hard for you to glorify him. You're not going to do it. There's going to be doubt in your mind and you're going to think, oh, well, this is not happening because of this. Or, you know, what about this? Or this is happening. Or you haven't accounted for this. Okay, I'm going to take all it off the table for you and tell you all things have been accounted for. Every circumstance in your life has been accounted for. Every bad thing in your life has been accounted for. Everything that you could think of has already been accounted for. There are no accidents. There are no mistakes. There is no bad luck. There is no good luck. It's all been accounted for. Every single thing. And so the only question is is will I accept it? Will I accept what God has provided? And so as you look at the riches, and we started looking at that in Colossians, the things that God has provided for you and me today is he provided these things that as you understand them, there is an assurance that is gained as we embrace what God has provided and we are able to settle down and allow the Holy Spirit to do his job. But when we keep fighting, oh, no, I'm not sure about this. And we look at, and we try to embrace what the world embraces, right? The world, these people don't know who they are. And you got all these people running around, you got the LGBTQ, and they're trying to find out who they are. You got all of these people running around trying to find out who they are. They don't know who they are. We, of all the people on the face of the earth, should know who we are, and we should be confident about it. And unapologetic about it. And as you look at it, let me show you something in Ephesians, and then we'll get into the crux of the message here. In Ephesians, notice what Paul says. His prayer for these Ephesians was an amazing prayer. And really, it would be the prayer that would really could, could apply to us, you and I, today. Notice what he says to these Ephesians. One of the most amazing prayers that you'll find in Scripture in verse 11, he says, uh, in, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, notice, actually, let's start with verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. For this cause, verse 14. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That word dwell is the word katokeo, it's to settle down and feel at ease in your heart. Christ is indwelling every believer, but he's not at ease in every believer. What's the difference? You know, it's kind of like somebody who's a backseat driver. Why don't you look over at my wife, Rick? <laughs> 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 it's like somebody. <laughs> it's like somebody who's a back. <laughs> it's like somebody who's a backseat driver. They are not at ease in who's driving, and as a result, <laughs> as a result of that, they are on edge. They can't relax. Right. They're thinking this person is going to mess up at any time. Right. What are we doing here? Where are we going? And so from a, a believer's standpoint, <clears throat> when I don't trust in what God has provided, that's what's happening. And I'm on edge and I'm not trusting what God has provided. I'm not abiding in my position in Christ. And I'm not allowing the sun to settle down and feel that ease in me. And so Paul prayed that Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so all of the things that are happening in life to me personally or outside of that, none of these things are in doubt. God's in control of all of them. The question, the only question here is how I respond to these things. And will I allow God to work into my life Where I will allow the Holy Spirit to cause me to manifest the Son's life in all of these circumstances that I face in this life? That's the question. All of the other things out there, they're they're going to be what they're going to be. They're what they are. The X, X factor is, how am I going to respond to them? Well, I allow God to do what he's going to do through me. And what we're going to see as we continue to look at these things of <clears throat> the riches of his glory is that he's provided everything we need. We are. There's no doubt about who we are and our relationship to him. We shouldn't be like these unsaved people who are searching for who they are and don't know who they are. There should be a confidence that the believer operates with that is far above any human being on the face of this earth. Because God has provided the facts and the truth about who we are and what he's doing, not only through us, but also in the world. We should be some of the most confident people there are on the face of this earth. And it's sad when we're not. And I think a lot of it is because of the fact a guy wrote a book back some years ago, J.B. Phillips, says your God is too small. And for a lot of people, they serve a little itty-bitty God. He's not the God of the Bible. And it's because they don't understand the God of the Bible because they've not taken time to really see what he has to say. And we'll see some of that here today. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity uh, to look at these things and grateful as believers that we should be confident that, as Paul says, if any man boasts, let him boast in the Lord. There's a lot to boast about when we look at what you provided for us in your son, Jesus Christ. And that those things we can boast on, the provisions that you've given us are just beyond measure. It's beyond our ability to comprehend them. And so we're thankful to that as believers that we have these, this great treasure uh, that we have and that we can be good representatives <coughs> for you on the face of this earth while we're in these bodies as you, um, we are able to allow um, ourselves to yield to the provisions you've given us and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work. And it's an amazing thing what you can do through these vessels. And we're so thankful for that. And we do remember... Um, Darlene's request that we didn't pray for with the family just remember Courtney and Darlene and uh, for Doretha and uh, what's going on in their lives and just pray that you strengthen them as well and that they would be able to be strong and uh, just uh, continue to intercede for them and remember Doretha thankful for her being here today and just pray that you continue to strengthen her and just grateful father for the provisions you've given there and that uh, you would be glorified in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so we want to look at several things today. And so we want to look at the fact that uh, the believer has been redeemed and what that means, that we have been adopted, are placed as sons, the fact that <clears throat> the, the believer has been accorded the righteousness of God, and also the fact that you and I have been sanctified. And so the fact that we are called saints, that we are called saints, that you are sanctified. And we have a lot of people today who don't understand sanctification. They don't understand sanctification. We are saints. That's what we're called. And we're called saints because of the fact that we have been made set apart to God. And so let's look at this idea of redemption that you and I were redeemed. That we were purchased. Now this is a very important thing to understand. So then I don't, if I understand that I was purchased, then I understand that I don't belong to myself. So you go into a store and somebody buys, you buy a product. And Pastor Dave gave this illustration. It's a great illustration. You go into the store and you buy something. And you get ready to walk out with the product. And the person at the register says, no, you can't take it. And you say, wait a minute, I, I bought this product. I said, I don't care, you bought it, you can't take it. And you say, but I bought it. It belongs to me. And they said, I don't care. I'm keeping it. Now, you, everybody's looking at me weird, right? Because you think that that's crazy. But that's what believers are doing with the Lord. The Lord purchased every single one of us, and we belong to Him. Our life is not our own. And so when I make decisions in which I say, say, I see a lot of unsafe people, they're making decisions every day about what they're going to do with their life. I've seen uh, people who retire and they say, well, I'm moving to um, some foreign country or whatever where they have better benefits or, you know, you could take your American money and go to some of these third world countries and live like a king. So a lot of people are doing that, right? Well... That never occurs to me because it's not God's will for my life because I'm not living this life for me. I know that God has a plan for me and it involves other people. That it's not about me. Right. And so when you understand that, as we make decisions for this life, our decision making is not just about me. And by the way, just as an aside, I do believe that's why you have, again, a bunch of loony people in this world. They're consumed with themselves. And if you're consumed with yourself, you might want to get you a psychologist and get you some meds because you will need it. And a lot of the consumption with self does that. And so it's not just about me. It's about God's will for my life. And what does God want? So why is that important? Because we've been redeemed. That word for redemption, uh, according to the Nider, is to is to release or to set free with the implied analogy to process of a, freeing a slave. To set free or to liberate or to deliver. Uh, and so you'll see that this has many implications. It deals with Israel under law that they were set free from the law. And now we see that we are set free from our sin natures. We've been completely set free from our sin natures. Don't have to live by them. The unsafe people, they do. Now notice, there's four words when you look at redemption that has to be taken into consideration. You have agorazo, which is the price paid for the possession to buy out of the marketplace. Then you have ex which is used of the law and which those that were pra- the price paid to buy out from the curse of the law. And then you have Lutron, which is the release from bondage accepted on the basis of the ransom paid. And then you have the word Apolutrosis, which denotes the complete unloosing that is going to take place. Now, positionally, we've already seen as being completely redeemed. And in reality, we will be completely redeemed in the future. And we'll see that. Now let's look at this idea for agorazo, and it's the price paid for a possession. And so notice in Second Peter two one, Christ paid the price for all men. The application of it, however, is only to those that are elect. Now notice in Second Peter chapter two and verse one. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Who privily bring in damnable heresies, even da- denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And so he's talking about these false teachers that will be in place in the last days. Remember, notice the distinction here. There were false prophets among the people. Now, I think he's referencing Israel. But notice the distinction here there will be false teachers. Among you. False prophets, false teachers. There is a delineation made there. And notice the point here. Even for those. And I believe in some of these instances he's talking about unbelievers denying the Lord that bought them. They were purchased. So Christ brought out the right to all men. Through his cross work. And so notice, he did this by his blood. Notice in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For so much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation. That word vain conversation. So here you can have an a, a ideal given of the unsaved man and what they're facing. Their, the word conversation there is their manner of life. And the word for vain there is the fact that they have a pointless manner of life. The life that they are leading is pointless. There is no point to how they're living their life. You say, "Well, it seems pretty good to me." But here's the point: when they die, none of it matters. I always think about this when some of these famous people die, and everybody's talking about this famous person that died. Henry Kissinger just died here this week. Um, I'm not going to put the man in heaven or hell. I want to put him in one place, but hey, I don't know. God knows. But if he's unsaved, as it looked like he may have been, it doesn't really matter. What he did in this life—it's all pointless. It does nothing for him now. And Paul said, or Peter says, "You were redeemed, uh, uh, purchased from your pointless conversation, received by the traditions of your fathers, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot." who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Here's a good scripture here to show you also that um, uh, the father knew that Christ was going to be the slain lamb, but when was it revealed in these last times? You know what that tells me? None of those Old Testament saints knew is well, Isn't it what it just said? He was revealed in these last times. They had no idea about that. And so notice you have ex agarazo, which is the price paid out from the, uh, to be redeemed from the curse of the law. Look in Galatians, if you would, chapter 4. And I think it goes without saying, but we'll say it again, that the Gentiles were never under law. You see it in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. Gentiles were never under law. And when the Gentiles, which have not the law. Do by nature the things in the law, you see. And then the first church council over in Acts 15. What was the discussion at the first church council? Whether the Gentiles should be under law. It's so clear to see. I just don't even know why this is even a question. But it is. And so here he's dealing with Jews and Gentiles in the church here. And so now with these uh, uh, Jews, he's talking to them about this idea that they were bought out from under the law. Now notice we'll pick it up, if you would, in uh, verse 4 of Galatians chapter... uh, Did I say 4? Yeah. But when the fullness of time was come... Well, let's go back in one because just to get some context here. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, uh, or really infants, we were in bondage under the element of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. Now, here's another thing to show you. That in the Gospels, they were under law. He sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law, right? To redeem them that were under the law. Who was that? Israel, Israel, you see. That we might receive the adoptions of sons, and because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, into his uh, your hearts crying, Abba, Father, and so this idea of redeeming those that were under law, and then you have Lutron, which is the ransom that is paid for those who are um, redeemed, and so you saw that again in First uh, 1 Peter one eighteen, and then you have Apolatrosis, which is looking at a complete unloosing of the believer. There, so we've been redeemed, but there's going to be a thoroughness of it in the future. And so you see, uh, it's an interesting thing because Israel is going to be unloosed completely in the future. And I believe this is going to be at the end of the tribulation period. Notice this distinction here in Luke chapter 21 and verse 28. Again, the Bible draws a delineation between three groups of people the Gentiles, the Jews, and the church of God. And that distinction goes all the way into eternity. Now notice, um, he's talking to Israel, and notice in verse 25, And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear for the things of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, there are going to be things that happen, and all of these people who are talking today, About all of the different bad stuff. Look you've seen nothing yet. These days that are going on now. And the things that are happening now. You don't want to be here for the tribulation period. If you think what's going on today is bad. You better hold on. You have seen nothing yet. And what's going to happen during the tribulation period. Notice he says here. That men's hearts will fail them for fear. Of the things that are going on. I don't see that happening yet. It's going to happen. And again, as I say to all of the global warming people, just wait. There's more global warming coming than you'll ever realize. (laughs) And it's going to happen. Verse 27. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he's talking to Israel they're going to be completely redeemed when the son comes back at the end of the tribulation period. But you know, when you come over to the believer today in this dispensation that as the church, we possess complete redemption right now as a result of being in Christ. And in reality, we're going to get complete redemption of everything in the future. Our bodies are going to be completely changed and it's going to be an amazing thing. We don't have everything that's coming to us yet, but we're going to get it. Notice this and we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that positionally we are seen as being redeemed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and notice in verse 30. <clears throat> now we read last week and we looked at this part last week in verse 26, 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now what is he going to look what he says about those who are chosen, verse 30. But of him, uh, already you could say um, "Out from him, right? Are ye in Jesus or Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption? So from the God, from the Father's (coughs) reckoning, we are seen as being completely (coughs) redeemed. You and I are lacking nothing. You know it's hard to get believers to see that. It's like somebody being in a prison cell. And I told you that when uh, I was watching the um, little excerpt from uh, Pilgrim's Progress, And in that excerpt, they they took Pilgrim to this person, and they were in this jail cell. And the the guide asked Pilgrim, she says, look at this person. And the person was in the jail cell, and they were just weeping and crying and weeping and crying. And she asked Pilgrim, or Pilgrim asked the, the guide, well, what's wrong with this person? She says, "I ask him. And he went over to the jail cell and asked the person, what's wrong with you? And the person couldn't say anything. They just kept weeping and crying and weeping and crying as if they were imprisoned in the cell. And the thing that you notice as the camera looked at it is that the door had no key. The jail cell was open, but they wouldn't come out of it. Do you know that happens to a lot of believers? They're a prisoner in their own mind. And they won't come out of a cell that they've been locked in, though the Lord has unlocked the gate. The door is open, and they won't come out of it. And so we're seeing Has possession, possessing complete redemption. Now, notice you see that again in Ephesians one fourteen. Ephesians one fourteen. Now, this is looking, uh we, we have it. Actually, this is when it's looking at the future. Um, and I think these two Ephesian passages are. Now, notice in verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated. According to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of the glory of of who first trusted in Christ and whom also you've trusted. after you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after you believe you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this is important to understand, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go upon saints. And those who were knowing it. And then today, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go upon believers. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's proof of the fact you're going nowhere. And that God completely has you. Notice in verse 14, which is the earnest, or really, a, a, earnest is a down payment, or an earnest money agreement uh, is how we would use it today, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Uh, to the praise of the glory, the praise of his glory. And so here you have this word, apolatrosis, as the redemption of the purchased possession. I think actually this is looking forward to the future when we're going to get everything. We've, we've not gotten completely all that is coming to us, but there's the last thing that's going to be completely redeemed is going to be this body. And oh, what a day it's going to be for the believer. And so positionally, you saw in 1 Corinthians uh, one thirty that we are... <coughs> Uh, 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 we do have redemption and then practically that's going to happen in the future now the believer is also seen as um, being adopted now I don't really like that word because the word adopted in the American sense is totally different from a biblical sense it's not even the same word and so it it has the wrong connotations to it when you adopt someone from from an American point of view you're taking someone that is not in your family and you're putting them into your family. And, and so that's not what is happening here. When you believe the facts of the gospel, you are born into the family of God as a natural born one into his family. You are a born one into his family. It's as if you were born in a natural sense into that family. And so you have different words that say that, like the word technon, that you were birthed into his family. So you are, you, so sometimes when people are adopted, people don't look at them as being a, a natural part of the family. You are a natural part of the family of God once you believe the facts of the gospel. You are a legitimate child of his. And so then the next thing that happens is that being in the family, you're also placed as sons so this word for adoption actually has this ideal of son placement. Now, what does this mean? This means nothing to you and I in the way that we operate in our American culture today, because we don't understand this. But back in the day, when and um, the uh, mindset of the uh, time that this occurred, a son, if if he was an heir, and there was uh, uh, he had a right to the throne or a right to uh, riches or whatever he would not get that right or have that right accorded to him until he reached a certain age. Right? And so when he reached that certain age, he had all the rights and privileges of being a son. So from a believer's standpoint, what this is talking about in sonship is there is no time lapse. The moment you, become into, you come into the family of God, you immediately have the rights and privileges of being a son immediately and there is no time lapse in that at all and so notice you see this word and I would give you this word for adoption um, actually you uh, see it over in Romans chapter uh, 8 but we'll, we'll get back Romans 8 let's look at it in uh, Romans eight fifteen. I didn't put that up front I should have put it up front but I didn't Um, And so notice in Romans 8, uh, um, 15, let's go back a little bit in verse 13 for um, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are not we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh or according to a standard of the flesh. And he's talking about the sin nature here. For if we live after the flesh, you die, you shall die Or really. If we conduct our lives after the sin nature, you're fixing to die. This is what we could say. This is how we would say it. This is probably how they would say it in Texas. You're fixing to die. <laughs> but if we, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the, uh, of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are, they are the sons of God, you see, and so everyone is born as, as uh, children of God. But here, as you see this leading of the spirit and it's manifesting this ideal of this uh, being uh, sons or mature sons. For we, you are not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. And so this ideal of son placement. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father, you and I have such a relationship to the father today. That it's not this distant relationship that you, that you, and some people see this in the Old Testament, where there was separation between God and the people. Why? Because of the law. But we have such a relationship to the Father today. Notice this word for Abba. There's been a lot of question about this word as to what does it really mean. But the word actually has this idea of an affectionate term in which you can talk to the Father like Daddy. Papa. Papa. Now, you might not have used that word with your father. You may not have even had an affectionate term you would have said to your father. <laughs> Hope our kids had it toward us. <laughs> <laughs> but, this, <laughs> but this one is Papa. A term of affection. Why? It's related to the fact that we are not just children, but sons. Now, why is this important for you and I to know this information? Most of the reason that people are doing things in this life, and particularly in, in involving their sin nature, they're insecure. They don't know who they are. This shouldn't happen with believers. Believers. This is how God sees those who belong to him. And you can see that if we're going to glorify God, that this is the way forward to doing it. That when we understand our relationship to him and what he's provided for us, that we can, what is that movie back some years ago, Waiting to Exhale?, The believer really can do that. I can settle down. I have a God who's in control. And so you see this word for sonship. Now I give you, uh, Lewis Burr Chafer gives a definition here in the outline. A divine act by which one already a child. Remember we talked about that. You're already a child by actual birth through the spirit of God is placed forward as an adult son in his relationship to God at the moment of regeneration. The believer being born of God and therefore the legitimate offspring of God is advanced in relationship and responsibility to the position of an adult son. All childhood and adolescent years, which are normal in human experience, are excluded in spiritual sonship. You can become a believer today and immediately you have all the rights and privileges of being a believer of somebody who's been a believer for years and years and years. Yes. And so notice you see this re- relationship to the nation of Israel. We won't use that, but um, the word for, that, for sonship and the word that is used there, you saw it in Romans 8, is the word huias. Now, what's interesting is that Satan has his sons. He does the same thing he has a family, but not all of the people in his family are sons. Do you realize that? Satan limits his sonship for only a special few. He only gives a special few this, this privilege of being a son. Now why does he do that? Because he can't control the sin nature of unsaved men. So what does he do? He tries to entice them to act right, By using these mature sons to lead the way. He induces with them special ability, special power in order to um, affect the others. Now let's just look at an example of this. Look at Luke chapter 16 and verse 8. One of the most interesting places that you see this. Luke chapter 16 and verse 8. Now, this is the story of the unjust steward. And notice how the word Lord is used here. And you have to be careful. The word Lord can be used not just of God. It can be used of sir, a a polite address. Or it can be used of a master. Right. Or it could be used of deity. So you have to make sure of the context here. And the reason I'm saying that is in verse 8, we're going to see that word Lord used, and I think he's talking about his master. He's not talking about God. He's talking about this person's master. Verse 8, and he said also uh, unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear of thee, Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be a steward? Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? We laugh about this all the time in the Greek. He really says literally what I do, (laughs) what I do for my Lord takes away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Now, this is human wisdom. This is this is pragmatism at its finest. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And he said unto the first, how much owest thou my Lord? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he says unto him, take thy bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Now, really, this is kind of underhanded what he's doing. Right. Then said he to another. How much owest thou? And he says, A hundred measures of wheat. And he says unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord, now notice it's not talking about God, he's talking about his master, commended the unjust steward because he had done, say that word, done wisely, is he had done prudently. Now, this is an interesting thing because it uses the word for ne'o, which uses the idea. It's, it really connects to the idea that when you actually use your proper frame of mind, you can actually develop coherent direction about things. And he says he, he commended the unjust to it because he had done wisely for the children of this age. Oh, really? See that word children? It's our word huyas. The sons of this age. Now, I think this is what this guy was. And they're very shrewd people. They're very shrewd. They do things that you probably wouldn't even think about doing. And I hope you wouldn't. The sons of this age are in their generation wiser than are the children or the sons of light. You see that contrast there? You have evil people in this world. And they're not all of the murderers and the drug dealers. Those people have a different kind of evil. These people that are at the top and some of these people that are shrewd in what they do, they are a lot more evil than the drug dealers could ever think about being. And notice this prudence, this, this shrewdness about them. And I gave you some more scriptures so you could see that. And so, but we as believers, we have this sonship. We're placed as sons. God sees us as mature sons, and it's just an amazing thing that believers we 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 don't really think that way. Notice we've we've been accounted to be righteous. God counts you and I to be righteous on the basis of what. I mean, if you look at Kevin Jeffrey, I, it ain't because of me. But notice 2 Corinthians 5.21, my, one of my favorite verses. This is, this is really, truly one of my favorite verses of all time. And I think I use it quite a bit. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think my uh, mind has been worn out from using this verse over and over and over and over again. And so notice in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Now notice what happens here in this verse. This is just an amazing verse here. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Where? In him. Oh, my. This is an amazing thing. So from God's point of view, notice this. He, going back to the father, has made. That word may, has made or that phrase has made is the word epoiason. Uh, and it means that which is done or produced. The, the father has caused this to happen Through the son, he didn't know any sin, but he made him, and I would say, a sin offering for us. He did not experientially know sin, but he was made a sin offering for us, who knew no sin. The son didn't know any sin, but notice, for us, on behalf of us, as a substitute for us. This is so important to see. Substitutionary work that the son did on our behalf and from that point of view the son did it but the father because we are so identified with the work that the son did he counts you and I to have done it as if we had done it ourselves notice I just go back on a couple of places just want to show you just hold your finger there and go back to first Corinthians 15 this is why getting the gospel right is so important if you believe the facts of the gospel Living in your present tense salvation should be a sense. It shouldn't be a problem, right? Notice what he says here in verse one through four. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you receive wherein you stand, which also you, uh, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you've believed in vain. The word believed in vain, um, is that you've added something else to it. And so if you believe these facts and you say, but I believe you've got to do this. You've nullified this point. For I deliver unto you, verse 3, first of all, which I also received how Christ died. See word for, as a substitute. It's the same word that's used over in 2 Corinthians. As a substitute, our, on our behalf. For our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And some would add, and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. Proof of the fact that he was raised from the dead. But notice that on our behalf. And you see it again. It's constantly Christ did it as a substitute for us. And now as a result of that, the father can see us as if we had done it ourselves. And so notice it says again in 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now Courtney just went through the class on the believer in Christ and the fact of uh, um, who we are in Christ. And all of these things that are accorded to the believer as a result of being in our position in Christ. Now, if these, when we were talking about physical riches and somebody left you an inheritance, I bet you every last one of you would not waste one single moment if you found out about it. And they wrote you and said that you, Uncle Joe, died and he left you as his single heir. And here is the information. They send you a letter, you'd probably rip that letter open so fast (laughs) trying to get in there, (laughs) trying to find out, what do I get? (laughs) Right? Well, you've gotten a lot of things spiritually as a result of the work that Christ accomplished. And the Father sees them more important than anything you would inherit physically. And it's just as real as any physical inheritance that you would receive and you would see again, you you are accorded to be righteous. Now, one of the places you want to see this, look at uh, Philippians 3 and 9. And I think Courtney was here this morning as he was uh, going through the book of Philippians. But notice, Paul exchanged the righteousness that he had under law for this righteousness that came by faith in Christ. And so notice in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he says, and let's pick it up in uh, verse um, 5. Circumcised, he's given his pedigree. Circumcised at the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I've counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them to be dung that I may win Christ. And so nothing from the law that he did in the law. And Paul was the, 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 probably as good as it got as far as the Pharisee, being a Pharisee. He says in Galatians 2, I surpassed all of my equals. There was none as high as I was. And he says, I count all of those things, nothing. Dung. In order that I may win Christ. And notice, here's the point here, verse 9. And be found where? In him. And so there's this position we have in Christ. And all of the things that we learn about who we are and what we have as a result of being in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness, I would add, which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You get all of these people running around trying to work to earn their righteousness. They're wearing themselves out. They're like gerbils on a little wheel just running, 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 running and they are getting nowhere. When God's already provided the righteousness you need, he counts you to be righteous not on the basis of what you have done but on the basis of what the Son has done. And when we see that, it's only then that we can act righteous in the here and now. And then the last thing we'll see is sanctification is accorded to the believer. The word sanctified is to be set apart. Now, I remember a lot of uh, people in our uh, in your Pentecostal circles. Um, I've met this woman, we used to uh, go to these different meetings when we were younger and you'd ask her, how you doing? She says, I'm doing fine. I'm saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so, that's how she would greet you. And so, the idea of sanctification, what does that mean? Does it mean that I were well, not me, that women <laughs> women wear long dresses? Does that mean that you don't wear makeup? In a lot of circles, that's what it means. That when you're sanctified, that it's, you're kept apart from doing certain things. Well, there's a lot of people who don't understand the difference between sanctification and purity. There's two different words. You have hagias who deals with sanctification, And there is an area that when I'm sanctified and I'm living positionally sanctified that I will keep myself from things that are bad. But then you have agnos which deals with purity in how I conduct my life. So now this word for sanctification is God sees me and the reason that we're called saints today is God already sees me as being sanctified. Why? Because I'm set apart together with his son, in his son, to him. That's why we're called saints, you see. Now notice the word sanctify is actually the word, uh, it's it's a hacky it means to be set apart. Um, It's seen as being set apart and distinct in a marriage situation. It's also used of food being distinct. But notice um, some definitions of sanctification, I'll give you a couple Uh, Kenneth Weiss gives this definition. Sanctification is used in the New Testament of answering to hagiadzo, which means to place in a relationship to God, answering to his holiness, to set apart for God. Sanctification is used, according to Vine's expository dictionary, of being the separation of the believer from evil things and evil ways. Thomas Green gives it this definition. To be separate from common condition and use, To be dedicated, and so you're set apart to God. And so let's look at some practicalities of this. Believers are seen by God as positionally sanctified. Now, notice the place of sanctification. Look, and we'll look at a couple of places. We're in Philippians. Turn back to Philippians one one. And Paul, really, he he points this out on several occasions as he opens his epistles. Notice in verse 1 of Philippians, Paul and Timotheus, the servant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus uh, who are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. And so the ones who are to the saints, it's the same word, hagios, or it's in a uh, different uh, declension there, but the ideal of ones who are set apart. And so we're called saints because we're set apart to God as a result of, and, Philipp, and we saw it in 1 Corinthians 1, that we were, uh, we're seen as being sanctified in Christ. Notice the Holy Spirit was involved in us being sanctified. Notice, if you would, um, in Romans 15 and verse 16. Romans 15 and verse 16. And notice, and um, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 14. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness and full of all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written to you uh, to the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified, or really this idea of being set apart by means of the Holy Spirit. And so it's used with regard to the offering there. And notice believers have been sanctified and called called saints. And um, I give you some scriptures where we see that. Just... Uh, from a practical standpoint that we want to look at concerning how the believers were positionally seen as sanctified, but in, in actuality we can act out that sanctification in uh, real time. And notice in 1 Peter 1.16. 1 Peter one sixteen. So here's the admonition. Peter is talking to these believers that were in the um, uh, persecution of the, uh, Rome, um, again, the history behind this is that Nero set Rome on fire and a lot of persecution bro- broke out against the Christians. And so there was just a lot of uh, persecution that was going on. And a lot of the believers were really having a hard time with it and how to deal with it. And so Peter wrote them. And he actually, at that time, ironically, was still in Rome where all of the persecution was going on. Which is ironic. You see, Peter, who was scared of a little slave girl that says you're one of them. He grew up. And at the time that he wrote this epistle, he was in Rome where the, the uh, storm was actually was uh, occurring. And he writes this to the believers who ran in verse one uh, uh, verse 13 of chapter one. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind being sober and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this idea of girding up the loins of your mind, or really that word for mind, there is deanoia, the it's the thoughts that are going through your mind. And this idea of binding the thoughts that are going to, through your mind, which really affects how you see things. Verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance, But as he that has called you is holy, again, holy, I would give it this definition, to be distinct, to be set apart. That's the focus of holiness. To to be distinct. Who are you set apart to? Set apart unto God. As he who has called you is holy, be holy uh, uh, in all your manner of conversation. That word conversation is, again, the word, your routine habit of life. In the way that I conduct myself and the way that I live, it should be evident to everyone who sees me that I'm distinct from others that they see that are not believers. In the way that I conduct my routine habit of life, I don't have to put a bumper sticker on my car I don't have to wear a cross. I don't have to wear a collar. I don't have to wear some religious garb. It should be evident in the way that I conduct my life that there's something different about me. I don't have to talk all of this Christian talk. You know, there's a Christian jargon that people use. It's not necessary, really. And so notice, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. I am distinct. And so you can get into the understanding if someone says, well, this is, you be separated from sin. Well, God has always been holy. You know what the problem with that is, making that statement? Is that God has been holy even in eternity past. Was there sin in eternity past? Was it? There's a fallacy to that. You're being distinct unto God, separated and set apart to God as being set apart. And so in the eternity past, you had the members of the Godhead, they were set apart to each other, you see. You want to talk about being set apart from sin? Be pure. There's a word that deals with that. You see, this is looking at how I conduct my life Precisely, God sees me as being distinct from all the other people here on this earth. When he looks down on this earth and he sees a dark world, what does he see? He sees a light over here. He sees a light over there. He sees a light over there. He sees me as being distinctly different. In practicality, I can live that way when I understand who I am in Christ. And it's not because I've got to wear certain clothes or do certain things or have certain bumper stickers on my car or whatever to show that I'm distinct. I just, in the way that I conduct my life, show it forth. But you see these things? The fact that uh, from a redemption standpoint, we've been redeemed, we've been placed as sons, uh, we are counted to be righteous, We are seen by God as being sanctified. How can we not glorify God if we experientially understand these things? It will be the natural result of it as we allow the Holy Spirit to do. We're not going to be striving. If you understand these things, you and I are not going to be striving to try to justify ourselves to other people because we already have been. And we're so at ease with what the Father has done for us that we allow the Holy Spirit to do the work and the Son can be seen out in us which glorifies the Father. It's so important to know who you are and how God and what God says about who you are. And as we go over this the next couple of weeks, I hope that this is just a review for you and you say, oh, yeah, 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 I already knew that. I've already been applying that, and that would be a great thing. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to look at these things and grateful to as believers that we have so many things that you've given us as a result of the work that the Son accomplished and that we are rich beyond measure and that the provisions you've given us according to the riches of your divine grace are enough for the believer as we revel in these things to be able to do the allow the Son to do the work through us uh, to, uh, as we are able to avail ourselves uh, to the Holy Spirit and allow him uh, to be able to produce the life of the Son in us as we, um, we are able to keep our minds focused on what you provided for us and who we are in your Son. And we're so, so amazed at the potential that that provides and that we can glorify you in that way. And we're thankful for it in your Son's name we pray. Amen.